0: 2 Timothy chapter 2, we're going to be reading from 14 through 26, the end of that chapter. Hear the words of the living God. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. Rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands. Bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart is holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee the youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. These are the words of the Lord. Now, we opened uh, this chapter, we began our study in the second chapter here, looking at these aspects of Paul's exhortations to Timothy concerning what ministry is like. What are the characteristics of this call that God has placed on uh, Timothy's life to be a pastor, his, uh, Paul's apostolic delegate ...to the church there at Ephesus. And he opens the chapter by reminding Timothy that he needs to avail himself... ...of the endless stream of grace that is found in Christ Jesus. The command is to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That is what Timothy is going to need and able to do the things... ...that he now begins to express to him in this particular letter... He's also then to transmit the good deposit that was entrusted to him to other faithful men. He's to pass down the gospel to one generation, and that generation needs to pass it on to the next. The gospel has been passed down to us because of the faithfulness of the apostles. And those faithful men, they entrusted it to, and on and on and on in this endless chain. And here we are today receiving the word of truth. God has preserved his word through the faithful obedience of faithful men receiving the good deposit. Then he amplifies the teaching ministry to which Timothy's called. We looked at three metaphors that he gives to Timothy to help explain something about ministry. And that was of the dedicated soldier, the disciplined athlete, and the diligent farmer. Uh, all of these were meant to help Timothy kind of embrace the reality and expect the reality that he will have hardship. He will suffer in ministry. He will go through immense trials and risk if he is faithful in the ministry that Jesus has commissioned him to. Timothy, like a good soldier, should not expect a safe and easy time in ministry. And neither should any one of us. The Christian life is anything but safe or easy. So we should expect that and embrace that as well. He must, be a fully devo- he must be fully devoted to Christ as a good soldier. But he also must train and sweat for that which is eternal. He's got a race to run. And like a disciplined athlete trains and runs and then competes according to the rules, well, he needs to be faithful to do the same, running for that imperishable crown of righteousness. Sweating, sweating, toiling, and laboring for the things of eternal value and significance. And like the farmer, Timothy must also engage in the hard work of ministry. Farming is hard work. Just like farming, ministry is hard work. Just like farming requires patience. You don't just drop a seed in the ground and two seconds later, pops up. Well, I know they want to grow things in labs out there, but I'd caution against that, right? The normal course of the way God designed for this to work is a seed falls into the ground, it dies, it germinates over time, being watered and cultivated and nourished by the nutrients in the soil. Eventually something sprouts up, and eventually there is the fruit. There's the harvest. And Paul tells Timothy, if you're patient, if you're diligent, if you work hard, you'll eventually get to share. In the fruit of your labor. That's gonna be hard work. And then, as we saw last week, the reminder something very important for him to remember remember Jesus Christ. Remember his death. Remember his resurrection. Remember he's the offspring of David. There's that continual reminder and rehearsal of the gospel and the work of Jesus Christ on his behalf. So, when ministry gets hard and he's tempted to despair and tempted to become discouraged and frustrated. Remember Christ Jesus, what he endured, what he suffered, what he went through on our behalf. And that is the example for us uh, in fruitful labor and ministry. So every resource Timothy needs to guard the good deposit, to endure hardship, to share in suffering for the gospel is found in Jesus Christ. And we must never forget that. So now he turns, returns in his exposition to give us three new metaphors here. All highlighting the character and nature of Timothy's ministry. And the three images there presented to us today are that of the good worker, the honorable vessel, and the Lord's servant. Verse 14, remind them of these things. Charge them before God. That's a recurring theme in this letter, isn't it? Remembering and reminding. Remembering and reminding. Remembering and reminding. And we need that because we we forget. I know some of you have sharp minds. Minds used to be. Not so much anymore. I used to take pride in the fact of my quick recall and alertness and ability to piece together complex things. That has gone by the wayside a long time ago. But this, the important stuff like this, in the grind of life, in the difficulty of life, in the hardship of life, we tend to forget these things. We tend to wallow in pity and despair or or we succumb to guilt and shame you know over our our sin and and we forget the grace of god we forget what christ has done for us we forget what he purchased for us we forget who we are in him and we must not do that we must remember and here he's saying remind them of these things what are these things well it's everything that's come before and everything that's coming on the other side of this remind them over and over again Remind them of what they already know, what you've already taught them, what, are, what they've already heard. The apostolic teaching, the good news, the word of God. What does that tell us once again and, and, uh, over all of this? Timothy doesn't have the liberty to make up his own content. He's not to remind them of his own opinions. He's not a content creator. What he's been entrusted with is what he needs to then retell over and over and over again. He's a preacher and teacher of already revealed truth. We tell what he received from Paul who received it from Christ. Paul wasn't a content creator. Whatever Jesus instructed him and taught him, that is what he presented. Okay? We can't forget that. The duty of a faithful teacher is to preach and teach sound doctrine, to preach these things from God's Word, not our own things, not our personal opinions. I think there's some pastors out there who forget that they're not content creators. They're not supposed to be. Okay? Our responsibility, my responsibility, is to remind you over and over again of the content of the gospel. The message contained in God's word. I need it for me. I need to remind myself over and over again. And I need to remind you over and over again. And you need to remind yourself over and over again. Look how Paul expressed this, pres- expresses this in Romans chapter 15. 15 through 18. But on some points I have written to you very boldly. Look at this. By way of reminder. It wasn't writing them something new. He's writing to them now to remind them of something that's already been taught to them. That they've already been instructed in. Because of the grace given me by God. Who did he get it from? From God. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. So that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable. Sanctified by the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus. Then I have reason to be proud of my work for God. Look what he says in verse 18. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. What's he saying there? I didn't deviate. I didn't deviate from what Christ instructed me to teach. He commissioned and called me to be the apostle to the Gentiles to take this gospel message. It's the ministry he's entrusted to me. It's his grace. It's his gospel. I was just faithful to do that. What he told me, what he instructed me, that is what I taught. And I didn't venture to go off into my own little personal revelations here. He fulfilled the ministry instructed to him. What happens when you don't continually retell and remind others of the gospel? What happens when a teacher who's supposed to be doing this ceases to do that? Like, what's the alternative to faithful gospel preaching and teaching? Well, that's the substance of the charge that Timothy is to give to these people that Paul is going to reference here. He writes and charge them before God to remind them all of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words. Not to quarrel about words. Now, that that quarrel about words literally translates as word battles. Word battles. There is an argumentation, a quarreling taking place here about words. Well, what kind of words? Well, we're going to see some of those here in a moment. All right? Uh, The teacher who abandons the faithful teaching of Scripture, the the, the teacher who drifts away from Scripture as the primary source uh, of instruction, the primary source of ultimate authority, will do much damage to the church. These people will engage in word battles, which are foolish and ignorant arguments, controversies, quibbling over minutiae and personal revelations and human speculations rather than what they should be doing, which is to be coming back over and over again to the word of truth. A teacher who leaves biblical revelation, begins teaching human speculations, what they end up doing is dislodging God's word from being the ultimate standard and authority for what is true. Because then the ultimate standard and authority of what comes true is not God's word, but... Personal prophecies, personal revelations, personal interpretations, personal opinions. That's not a faithful teacher. The word of God is not the ultimate standard. Then people will fight over all kinds of issues and present their own experiences and opinions as the authoritative standard. Well, God told me. I had a dollar for every time I've heard that over my 37 years of serving the Lord. God told me. God told me. It's funny how what God told you is not even God's word, but somehow God told you. And most people say God told me because they're the ultimate authority. It's not God's word any longer. And who are you then to question that individual? Well, God told you. What do you want me to do? I've had people over the years come to me and say, well, God told me I need to do this. And I'm like, well, why are you coming to me then? (laughs) I mean, you just played that trump card. God told me. Well, great. That's supposedly the highest authority then, you know. No, that can't be our ultimate. Someone's subjective experience, someone's voice that they claim to have heard is not the standard, the ultimate standard of what is truth. The faithful teacher is going to come back over and over again to what's already been revealed. Without the word of God. Without the word of God, with the word of God rather being set aside, there's not going to be a common source for authority to judge whether someone's experience or opinions or revelation or word or whatever it might be, line up with God's word. How will we know if it's truth or error if there isn't an ultimate standard? A standard that all of us say is the highest standard. God's word must be that. God's Word must be the ultimate arbiter of what is true and biblical, or we will fall right into what he talks about here, quarreling about all kinds of things, arguing about all kinds of things, debating about all different kinds of things. And we saw this in 1 Timothy, that right out of the gate in his letter to Timothy there, he instructs him to deal with those who are teaching a different doctrine. Arguing about myths and endless genealogies, which he says promoted speculation. Now, there's good things we should be speculating about. But not about already revealed things. Not already about the word of truth that has been entrusted to us and handed down to us. There's no room for speculations there. That's not open for debate. It is if you set God's word aside, though, as the ultimate standard. Of what God has revealed. So there's a problem here at Ephesus, because he's now circling back to this in this letter. Now, this <clears throat> is about two or three years after First Timothy uh, was written. Again, a reminder of where Paul finds himself in this moment. He's in a dungeon awaiting his execution. So his his care and concern for the people of God here, once again, that they don't shift from the gospel. That they don't deviate from apostolic teaching, what's already been revealed, right? Because it's a big deal, and it's probably having devastating effects there in Ephesus. It certainly was having devastating effects in other churches at that time. And it certainly is having devastating effects in churches today. Why is it so bad to allow people to engage in these word battles? Why don't we just allow people who have claims to personal revelations? And look, I come from that background. Everybody and their mother had their own private revelation of something or other. You know, why don't we allow that as authoritative teaching and instruction here? Look at the effects of false teaching in the church just in this little passage here. And it's not the only one. Go through all the pastoral letters here, these three. Go through all of apostolic teaching and you will see these similar themes come up time and time again. Verse 14. Speculations. Reverent babble, all of these things, controversies, does no good. What kind of good does it do? A little good? No, no no good. It's good for nothing, right? It literally means it's not profitable. There's no gain, right? Verse 14, it ruins the hearers. Those who hear it, and it's not just listening to it, but it's who receive it, right? Who take it in, who begin to accept it as uh, valid and authoritative, it ruins them. Deep spiritual ruin takes place. Verse 15, it leads people into more ungodliness. Remember, the goal of faithful gospel preaching and teaching and instruction is to lead people to godliness. This has the opposite effect. It leads them to more and more and increasing ungodliness. Verse 15, it spreads through the church like gangrene. Is gangrene a good thing? Have you ever seen something that's gangrenous? That's nasty stuff, right? Starts eating into living flesh and cutting off the blood supply, and it withers and dies full of pus. At some point, it's going to need to be amputated. Well, this kind of stuff spread in a church is ruinous to a fellowship. Verse uh, 18, the faith of some will be upset, right? Their faith is going to be set into turmoil. There will be doubt and uncertainty and unbelief. Verse 23, it breeds more quarreling. And anytime you have quarreling, right, you're going to have divisiveness, division. And in verse 26, those who teach it and those who receive it are said to be ensnared by the devil. It's why faithful teachers must zealously guard the truth. Must continually preach and teach and reteach and retell and remind and re remind God's people of what they've already heard. But bear in mind, this isn't just for preachers, teachers, and pastors. This is for all of us. Just like a pastor must be faithful, we're going to look at this here in a moment, and diligent in rehearsing the gospel and retelling the gospel. You need to know it. You need to rehearse it. You need to remind yourself over and over again. You never move beyond the gospel. You don't ever get to a place where the gospel is no longer irrelevant. That wasn't just for when I first came to faith in Jesus Christ. Now I go to the deeper things. Oh, what is this numerical value of the Hebrew word tell me for my life? You don't need that. You need the gospel. You need to rehearse what Jesus has done for you. Because tomorrow when you sin, tomorrow when someone offends you, tomorrow when you're wounded and betrayed by someone, tomorrow when you get a bad diagnosis, tomorrow if you lose your job, tomorrow when a bill comes in and you're like, I have no way of knowing how to pay for this, what are you going to do? You need to remind yourself of what God has promised in Christ Jesus of who you are in Christ Jesus that's why we can never forget we can't afford to forget and we need to remind ourselves over and over again now let's look at these three metaphors that together with the other three we already looked at kind of give us a fuller picture of this faithful teacher the character and nature uh, of the faithful teacher and the first one is found there in, in verse 15 do your best to present yourself to God one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. This first aspect here is of the good worker, or we could say even the unashamed worker. What is a teacher? A worker. What is their work? Teaching. <laughs> Someone's a teacher uh, at school, right, or a professor. Whether they teach elementary, middle school, high school, or Bible class, or whatnot. A teacher, their their duty, their job, their their labor, their work is teaching. And in this instance, the teaching is the handling of the word of truth. Word of truth, again, is just another word that's synonymous with the gospel, the good deposit, right? Uh, The word of faith, the teaching, all of these are the same thing Paul uses these Uh, phrases and terms interchangeably it's the transmitting of the gospel message and here two uh, types two kinds of workers are being sharply contrasted good workers and bad workers the good worker is one who is said to be approved that word approved means to be tested and to be verified or uh, authenticated as the genuine thing the real deal Okay? Like if you're testing metals or precious gemstones, and they're tested, put under the microscope, or they're put through some, some battery of tests, and uh, someone gives it a seal of approval. This is genuine. This is a 14-carat diamond. I don't even know what's a legitimate big diamond. Sorry, honey. I don't, I don't know that. <laughs> is an eighth of a diamond carat good? I'm just kidding. No, no, thank you. (laughs) Now, in contrast, the bad worker is not approved. They've been tested, and they have failed the test. They're not genuine. Now, even though they may present themselves as genuine, they may even be preaching and teaching like they're the real deal upon further examination, we find out they're not, right? And whereas the good worker has no need to be ashamed because they are, The genuine thing and approved, the bad worker has every reason to be deeply ashamed. Now, how is this determination made between the good worker and the bad worker? Right? Well, it tells us there. The way you can differentiate between the good worker and the bad worker is by their handling of the word of truth. How they handle the word of truth. The good worker. Rightly handles the word of truth. Those two words, rightly handle, uh, in the Greek, are one word, and it literally means to cut a straight line. That's the imagery here that that Paul is presenting with his illustration of rightly handling or cutting a straight line with the word of truth. The root of the the Greek word is ortho. What is an orthodontist? Someone who takes teeth that are like this and it straightens them, right? What is orthodoxy? We call it right teaching, but more than anything, it is teaching that is straight and aligns with God's Word. And we consider that, and we call that orthodoxy or orthodox uh, teaching. The idea here is of a straight path okay, or cutting a straight path. The word of truth is a straight path. the, The faithful teacher does, through precise, accurate, careful instruction and teaching, plain exposition of the word of truth, is he's giving people a straight path to the truth. He's cutting a straight path to the truth so that people can walk towards it. It's not taking detours. He's not creating all different ways around this thing. He's not making left turns and right turns. He's taking a straight path to the truth so that people can see it and walk in it. He gives his utmost attention and care that he is both staying on the path himself and making it easy for others to follow along the straight path. He tells Timothy, do your best. Now, when someone tells you to do your best, what are they expecting? You do your best, right? That you give attention and diligence and care to what they're being asked. Do your best to vacuum the house today. Or else. How many of you have heard that one? No. You're going to do your best. As a child, when a parent tells you, do your best. The expectation is you're going to give it your all. You're not going to slack off. You should be working, you're not daydreaming, you know, or doodling or doing something else other than what you should be doing. Do your best to present yourself as a worker approved by God, okay? You must sweat and toil in the preparation and delivery of God's Word. Preaching and teaching God's Word is hard work. Now, I know there's some of you saying, well, you Dan, you only work on Sundays. Your job's on Sundays. Well, this aspect of it is, the preaching and teaching element right here, though, did not begin right now. That preaching and teaching began with study and prayer and preparation and a labor behind the scenes that none of you get to see. It's hard work. There is toil involved here. Now, is it really hard work? Yes, it is. It's not like digging a ditch. Or some other strenuous manual labor job. Not like that. Not in that case. But make no mistake. It is the faithful preacher isn't just downloading a message from sermons dot com. They're pouring over the text. They they are needing to understand fully. What is God's Word saying? What does it mean? Go back to what we talked about in our series at the beginning of this year. How do we even begin to understand God's Word? How do we feast upon the Word of God? It requires diligent study and preparation. I've got to understand it before I can even begin to open my mouth and help you to try to understand it or make sense of it. And then I need to organize it in a way because right? if you just read this passage, maybe immediately it's not all rel- uh, you know, relatively uh, apparent to you what Paul is instructing you. Know, I'm trying to connect other pieces of these pastoral letters to this. It takes work. Some weeks more than others. I've been preaching a long time. And there are some, some weeks where I'm really scratching my head because I'm like, I don't know if I've got a full grasp of something here yet. So I need to keep working. I need to keep laboring here, right? Yeah, we're not downloading a message. I know there's some guys out there who do, but faithful teachers don't do that. 1 Timothy 5.17. Recall uh, this that Paul mentioned there in 1 Timothy 5.17. says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. It's a labor. It's work. It's hard work also because you have to handle The Word of God with great care. This is not to be flippantly delivered. Casually delivered. The material is not mine. The content is not mine. And the material, some of it, can be very offensive. Because God's Word does offend, doesn't it? (laughs) Some of it's controversial. There's a lot of controversy surrounding things God's Word says. So certain passages need to be treated with an extra care or an extra way of presenting it in light of that. It's hard work because like the farmer who sweats and toils working the ground, great patience is required to see the harvest. It's not readily apparent at times. You can't always see immediately the results of faithful teaching and preaching. I'm trusting God it's there. I'm trusting it's, He's working it in your life, but I don't always see that immediately. I don't always see the fruits of that immediately. So guess what? I've got to continue to encourage myself in that. There's some people who've been with us here a long time, and I'm like, man, I haven't gotten that yet. And I've got to be, continue to be patient and prayerful and diligent in my own study. Because guess what? Sundays come every seven days. I don't know if you knew this. I've got to do this, and guess what I'm doing this week? The next one's already on my heart and mind. I'm ready, preparing for the next. It's an ongoing week in and week out, year after year. I had a pastor ask me a couple weeks ago, how many messages have you preached? Truthfully, I have no idea. That's not something I keep track of. Um, But at least in our time of sent church, probably about close to 1,000 just here, that's not to account for Bible studies. You know, in other times I've been called on to preach in other environments. And then I had about another 15 years of ministry before that. And some of that, when I was in youth ministry, I was preaching every single week. That's so always a couple thousand. I don't know. 2,500, 3,000. Who cares? And the point is, it's, it's a labor that's taking place over time. And some of that just always see immediately. So there's patience required here. We're working to please God, not man. The good worker, the faithful teacher, desires to be faithful. Not funny, not flashy, not famous. Faithful, faithful. The work is unto the Lord. Recognizing that I'm going to have to give account to the Lord. Everyone who teaches and preaches and instructs from God's word will one day have to give account to the Lord. How they've handled the word of truth. James chapter 3, verse 1. Look at this warning. Not many of you should become teachers. Amen. My brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with what? Greater strictness, greater severity. That verse keeps me up at night. Think about that. Pray for me. Pray for pastors. Pray for those who labor in preaching and teaching. It's why Paul is exhorting Timothy here continually to not get caught up with irreverent babble and quarrels about words, because it leads people away from what is to be the goal of faithful teaching, which is teaching that produces and leads godliness. Godliness is the goal. I want people to grow in their faith to mature in their faith, to grow in Christ's likeness And that other stuff is a distraction. That other stuff leads people into all sorts of things except for godliness. In fact, as we said earlier, it produces more and more ungodliness as the opposite effect of that. We don't want that. Okay, We want teaching that promotes godliness, and that can only come from the truth of God's Word alone. Now, the bad worker is said here... He doesn't rightly handle the truth. He actually swerves from the truth. And that's listed in the example of the two individuals we'll talk about here in a moment. They swerve from the truth. That word swerve uh, has a different understanding here than about when we looked at rightly handling. To swerve, it's an archery term, actually. Right? It means to hit the mark, to hit the bullseye. Right? What's the bullseye? It's the truth. The truth is the target. The truth is in view. The faithful uh, teacher, right, is pulling back the bow, and he's to fire an arrow to hit at the truth. But the bad worker, their arrows are going everywhere but the target. Okay? They're deviating from the mark. They are missing the mark. The truth is like a target that must be aimed at and hit. And their aim is off because the truth isn't what is central to them. Getting at the truth isn't what is the most important thing. It's whatever the pet teaching is, the irreverent, foolish controversies and different doctrines or all of those things, right? Uh, They don't hit the bullseye of truth. Instead of cutting a straight path, like the good worker, their paths are crooked. So you don't arrive at the truth. In Acts chapter 13... Uh, there's this, this story here in, in verses 8 through 10 where Paul confronts uh, this guy teaching a twisted doctrine. Uh, verses 8 through 10. But Elemas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them. Right? There, he was opposing the apostles, countering uh, their proclamation of the gospel here, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, Looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil. say that too fast. You might say something else. You son of the devil. You enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy. That's pretty intense, isn't it? Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? That's what he was doing. Twisting and perverting the truth. And no one will arrive from the truth if they follow his teaching. So he commands them to stop doing that. That's what false teachers do. But sadly, that's what a lot of teachers do. A lot of pastors do, unfortunately. They make crooked what should be straight. Sadly, in some pulpits today, the text that is going to be talked about is announced. It is read... And then it's never returned to again for the duration of the message. You got stories. You got jokes. You got personal anecdotes. But no clear exposition of the text. No straight path for the people to follow and go after. It's crooked paths. It's crooked paths. And I know people like communicators that are entertaining. But you're not here to be entertained. That's not the goal here. That's not the goal. It's the truth. It's the truth. It's to point you to Jesus. It's to, for you to walk in the way. Okay? In other places, <clears throat> it doesn't matter what the text is, it's going to get steered off into whatever the uh, pet, you know, hobby horse of the, of the preacher is. <clears throat> I know some pastors who, whatever, it doesn't matter what the text is, they're off to talk about what they always love to talk about. it will be politics. It could be it could be about anything, okay? Uh, but they always turn every text kind of goes off in that direction, you know. I kind of served with someone like that. Doesn't matter what. Doesn't matter what the text was. It ended up in what he always loved to talk about, right? And not every text is about everything, right? Or in some places, the text is ripped from its context and then misapplied. Or the text is read and it's imme- immediately moralized. Here's the moral lesson in the text when it has nothing to do with that. Okay? Those are crooked paths. Some do it unintentionally. A lot of those guys do. Most do it intentionally also. Because they have a bent they want to go on and they want to take the people there. We've got to be careful. We're not content creators here. And they lead people down the wrong paths. Now Paul names two examples of crooked teachers. Those who are taking people on these crooked paths. And he's going to give the specific truth that they are uh, distorting, right? The crooked path they're taking people on. So you've got these two dudes here, Hymenaeus and Philetus. Now, we were already introduced to Hymenaeus back in 1 Timothy, right? But he's obviously up to his shenanigans here, okay? He's named again. Two times your name is written in Scripture and not for anything good, right? Not not good, right? Um, what were they saying? Well, they were teaching that the resurrection had already happened. Now, obviously, he's not talking about Christ's resurrection. Yes, that had already happened. What he's talking about is the promise of the future bodily resurrection of the saints. What Christ had promised. What Paul preaches and teaches in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We talked about this last week. The, the the importance of the centrality of the doctrine of the resurrection. This is foundational for our faith. And they were saying, no, no, no. It's not a physical bodily resurrection. They spiritualized the resurrection. It already took place. All right? Everything is realized in the promises here and now. It's not a future off thing, uh, far off thing. It's not something that we're looking at towards the return of Christ. It has already taken place. And Paul is saying what they're doing, because they're teaching something crooked, they're missing the mark, they're not hitting the word of truth, it is upsetting the faith of some. Now think about the hope of the resurrection for us as believers. Our physical resurrection from the dead at the return of the Lord, and there might be different ideas of what that looks like, Do our bodies who've been cremated rematerialize? And does he reanimate dead corpses? I have no idea. What I do know is he says it's going to happen. He will physically raise us. These corruptible bodies will be raised incorruptible. Right? It's proof positive of Christ's physical resurrection from the dead. If he didn't physically rise from the dead, there's no way you and I are going to physically rise from the dead. If there is no physical bodily resurrection, then there was no physical resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, and His resurrection was not spiritual. It was a bodily resurrection from the dead. Which is why He could tell Thomas, hey, put your hand over here, man. Stick it in my wounds. See, this is my real body. Okay, it's a big deal. It's more. And we talked about that last week. It's foundational." And that kind of teaching that they were doing, he says, spreads like gangrene, slowly spreading like this infectious disease, and it's going to bring death to the fellowship if it's not cut off. That's why faithful teachers need to immediately deal with false teachers and false teaching and warn of those things because you'll be going off on a crooked path. It's the continual exhortation. Be careful what you're listening to out there. The Puritans of old never had this problem because they would preach for three hours and, and they would preach multiple times throughout the week and people, did, did, the source was one place. Now, if that teacher was off, then yeah, they were, they were going off on a crooked path. But today, you have access to millions of teachers, 24-7. You get tired in the middle of the night, you're not falling asleep, you can pop on YouTube and you can watch anyone at any time. And I have no idea what you're listening to. And that is something that concerns me greatly. Right? Because I know some, there's some who love to consume hours and hours and hours of different podcasts and teaching. And my prayer is that it is sound doctrine and sound teaching. And I'll say amen and praise God for that. Okay? And if you want to know who to listen to, I have a whole host of guys I'd recommend to you. Okay? You got to be careful what you take in because it can lead you off in a different path. There is truth, there is error. There's a straight path, there's a crooked path. There's a bullseye you can hit in the target of truth and you can miss it by a mile. There's truth that leads to godliness, health, and life, and there's falsehood that leads to ungodliness, disease, and death. We need to stay on the path of truth. And it's not just Me who needs to be diligent in my study, you need to as well. Diligent to know the Word, consume the Word, meditate on God's Word. Take it into your heart, brothers and sisters. Be careful how you treat God's Word. Okay? And for sure, avoid false teaching. But, we must not despair. I can imagine in this moment, you know, of all these continual exhortations that Timothy is reading beware, stop that guy, charge that guy to stop teaching false doctrine, different doctrines. Hey, avoid this, avoid that. That's overwhelming. But, but there's good news. There's a great comfort that Timothy and you and I can, can rest in, right? Because those who truly belong to the Lord, God's going to take care of them. Though the faith of some may be upset by the false teachers, Right? though some are going to be ruined by the gangrenous errors of these false teachers, though some are going to be led into more and more and ever-increasing ungodliness, the foundation of God stands firm. Look at verse 19. Right? What he says here is that God's true church is not going to fall apart. It's not going to crumble. It's not going to be destroyed. Verse 19, God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord do what? Depart Depart from iniquity. God's firm foundation is his church. The true church. right? The church that Jesus says that he's going to build. The church he said that the gates of hell would not prevail against. That church, he calls it the firm foundation. And the church in view here is not the visible church, it's the invisible church. Okay? I'll we'll explain. Paul's going to quote here an Old Testament passage, and he's going to talk about a central idea as this twofold seal upon the true church. Two aspects, two elements here. The first seal is secret and invisible. Okay? And, and that is by quoting this Old Testament passage The Lord knows who truly is. Belongs to him. The Lord knows who are His. Okay, that is taken from Numbers chapter sixteen, and I want to encourage you to read that uh, sometime this week. It is a story of the rebellion of Korah and the sons of Levi. Like that's a, it's a terrifying story. It'd make a great movie. Okay, what happens there? Korah leads a rebellion against Moses and Aaron, right? Korah and the and two hundred and fifty chieftains gathered uh, uh, against Moses and Aaron and what they wanted. He, Korah says to Moses, Moses, you've gone too far. All of God's people are holy. All of us should be able to have access to the tabernacle and minister before the presence of the Lord. The problem, only God had appointed Aaron and certain priests as the ones who would be ministering before the Lord. Now, Korah and the other sons of Levi also served in ministry. They were also assigned in a portion, now not to officiate sacrifices, certainly not like Aaron to present themselves before the Lord and make atonement for the people and offer sacrifices on the altar, but nevertheless, they were brought into the service of the Lord. And, And Moses falls on his face to them and says, what's wrong with you guys? Isn't it enough that God has already given you this opportunity to serve him? And, and serve the people of God. And now you want to be priests too? And he says, I've gone too far. You've gone too far. And this is where he says here, the Lord knows who are his. The Lord is going to make a distinction. The Lord is going to make a separation. Long story short, he tells them to put fire and incense in a censer. And to present themselves before the tabernacle. Because God was about to do something. And if you know the story, Korah... And his entire family, the earth opens up and swallows them. And God tells Moses, you better tell the people to separate themselves from them, right? And people start taking off everywhere. And then fire goes out from the tabernacle and consumes the 250 that rallied against Moses and Aaron. The Lord made a distinction. Separated the true from the false, the holy from the profane, okay? This is the idea that Paul is presenting here to, to give to Timothy as comfort and encouragement to say, even though the visible church contains true and false, wheat and tares, sheep and goats, God knows who is who's his. God has already chosen for himself a people. They'll not be lost. They'll not be stolen from the Lord, ultimately, okay? Okay? And that's comforting. That's comforting, especially when you see the attacks against the church, the attacks against the truth. You and I cannot fall into a pit of despair and discouragement and thinking, my God, the church is going to be destroyed. No, no, it's not. Not the true church. The visible church is going to suffer in many different ways. And the visible church contains faithful teachers and unfaithful teachers. It just does. But God knows, so this was the secret and invisible seal. God knows who truly belongs to him. The second seal is public and visible. okay? This is in distinction uh, to that. The fruit of those who claim to be Christians, those who claim to be true followers of Christ, that fruit can be examined. There's a visible evidence to see if there are those who are genuine followers of Jesus Christ. Those who are truly saved and have the knowledge of the truth are going to avoid wickedness. They're going to depart from iniquity. They are going to pursue godliness. Why? Because the spirit regenerated life is going to produce a harvest of righteousness in them over time. And we'll get to examine the fruit of people and see whether they are in the faith or not. Albeit that one's more subjective, but that's why it's About the public invisible church. Only God truly knows. But we have generally a good idea, don't we? And the point is that God's church is going to persevere. And endure the assailment from false teaching and false teachers. God's sovereignty and salvation is a seal. And the witness of true believers is a seal. And that should never cause us to think that God's church is doomed. It's not doomed. Not by a long shot. God's going to take care of his true church. Amen? All right. These two are going to be quicker, all right? The honorable vessel, all right? Verse 20 through 21 in this aspect here of these vessels in the house, in the great house, all right? It's pretty straightforward imagery because it's about the purity of faithful teachers, right? The purity that they should possess so that they could be honorable vessels and fit for the Lord's use. Now, our homes are filled with many different types of vessels, okay, or articles or utensils, call them whatever you want here, right? We have pots and pans, all different kinds. Some of you have got really nice ones that you bring out on special occasions, just like fine china, and uh, you've got the nice gold or silver forks, you know, that are hidden in the nice little velvet-covered thingamajiggy in a drawer, and, like, only when the king and queen come, then that's when that stuff gets broken out. But then there's the common stuff, right, our everyday use. It's not fine china. It's plastic cups, right, the Ikea utensils and stuff like that, maybe even paper plates. I don't know, and, and cups. Uh, but there's the common, everyday, ordinary use, which in, in here is called dishonorable use. And then there's the fine stuff, used for special purposes. That's the honorable uh, on, used for honorable and special occasions now he says in the great house well what's the great house what's the great house here it's the church the house of the lord right we saw that in first timothy chapter three it's called the household of god right the great house here is the church but in this view it's the visible christian community because as i said the visible christian community is a mixed bag There's true and false mixed in. There's, again, the wheat and the tares. Isn't that what Jesus said? The wheat and the tares are going to grow up together. They're going to be indistinguishable possibly in the here and now, but at the time of the harvest, no, they're going to be separated. There's sheep and there's goats. There's faithful teachers. There's false teachers, okay? All of that is there. So in this metaphor, which is kind of a shift from the good worker, it's still talking about... The two types of teachers, the good worker, the bad worker. Here it's the honorable vessel and the dishonorable vessel, okay? The authentic and the false. The Timothys represent the honorable. The Hymenaeus and Philetus of the world represent the dishonorable uh, vessels, right? Why is it called teacher's vessels? Well, think of a vessel just as an instrument. It's an implement you use for something. And that's what teachers are. They are implements, instruments in the hands of the Lord to serve God's people. Okay? Uh, that's what Jesus calls Paul in Acts chapter 9.15. When he sends the prophet to commission Paul after his conversion, the Lord says to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. That's exactly how Paul saw himself. That's exactly how you and I should see ourselves. We are instruments of the Lord, okay, for his use. And faithful teachers are considered the honorable vessels that have been consecrated, set apart as holy, eager to serve God, and be used for his glory. But he says, well, how does one become an honorable vessel then? What is the condition for being an honorable vessel? Well, he says there, if they cleanse themselves from what is dishonorable. They cleanse themselves from what is dishonorable. Now, what is the dishonorable here? Is it sin? Yeah, it's all of that, impurity, uncleanness. But keep in mind the context of what we're dealing with here. We're talking about good workers, bad workers. The bad workers are those who are teaching false, okay? So the cleansing here is in view of cleansing themselves from anything remotely associated with that falsehood. So it implies both life and conduct that needs to be cleansed. And that would be consistent with everything that we've seen in the pastoral letters so far uh, up to this point. Life and doctrine are to be uh, cleansed, to be made a vessel of honorable use. That would be consistent with the qualifications of elders that Paul already instructed Timothy. Remember I said it? The life, the character, the conduct of the man is the job description. Okay? Same thing here. And his exhortation that we already looked at in First Timothy chapter four sixteen, where he tells Timothy, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Life and conduct need to be watched, need to be guarded, need to be cleansed. Faithful teachers avoid falsehood and error. They don't engage in the irreverent babble of false teachers and the controversies and all that stuff. They pursue purity of life and doctrine. This metaphor, and I can, you can see it right here in this passage, why that's true in, in regards to this, is because the honorable, this mention of the honorable vessel cleansing themselves is bookended by two clear calls to personal holiness. We already looked at the first one. Everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Pursue holiness, pursue godliness, pursue righteousness. Depart from what's false, depart from what's unclean and unholy. And then we're going to see here momentarily, he's going to tell him to flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Purity of life and conduct is in view here. He is to purify himself so he can be fit for the master's use. How does he do that? Well, negatively, flee youthful passions. Some of your translations say flee youthful lusts. And immediately when we see that, we think, oh, he's telling them to flee sexual sin and temptation. Yeah, that's in view here, for sure. But it's not just that. Youthful passions, all right? What does that mean, passions, okay? It's not just about sexual sin and lust, though it includes that, okay? It's also fleeing, running from all of the wayward impulses of youth. Like what? Well, temptations to quarrel about everything to argue about everything, to engage in foolish, ignorant controversies, the temptation to respond harshly to a critic, to respond in an unkind way when challenged by his opponents. It includes the temptation to impatience, arrogance, contentiousness, stubbornness, and recklessness. He's to flee those things. All of those youthful impulses. All of those carnal drives that would be antithetical to a life that is pursuing practical holiness, pursuing a cleanliness, a cleansing in their life and conduct and their doctrine. Okay? Honorable vessels cleanse themselves from everything that is not Christ like. Now, positively, he's to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Now, we've seen this here positive, this negative and positive interplay in instructions. It's running from something but pursuing something else. You run from something, but you're running to something, okay? It's not just about the fleeing. It's also about the pursuing. In this case, four essential marks are given here, right? Righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And this is similar to the charge he gave in 1 Timothy chapter 6.11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. You see this is a continual exhortation of Paul's for this young man Timothy here, flee to escape the snare of youthful passions and chase after what is good. Run from spiritual danger and run to and run after what is spiritually good. And That is not just the duty of a faithful teacher. Every Christian's responsibility, every Christian's duty to chase after what is good and to flee and run from what is spiritually dangerous. Put off the old, put on the new. Put to death what is earthly in you, set your mind on heavenly things. Mortify the flesh, walk by the Spirit. Both, fleeing and running after. John Stott, in his commentary, puts it this way. It is the ruthless rejection of the one in combination with the relentless pursuit of the other, which Scripture enjoins upon us as the secret of holiness. Ruthless rejection of what is sinful, what is evil, what is evil. Uh, youthful passions and relentless pursuit of what is good and Christ-like. Pursue practical holiness but you pursue it by the grace of God. Right? We do this strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Sadly, many, too many have disqualified themselves and forfeited the privilege of being used by God because they have failed to take care of their inner life. They have failed to flee and failed to pursue. Um, We all need to be watchful. We all need to be on guard. The last imagery here is that of the Lord's servant. Paul now refers to the faithful teacher, the good worker, the honorable vessel, as the Lord's servant. It's a servant. It's the word for slave. The faithful teacher is a slave of the Lord. He's a slave serving in the Lord's house. And because we are the Lord's servant, we're prohibited from engaging in the foolish senseless and stupid controversies that breed quarrels. That's off limits. That's a no-no for the faithful teacher. Why? Because that kind of argumentation and foolishness is profitless. There is no gain. It ruins the hearers. It breeds quarrels. There's no life in it. Now, he's not forbidding from engagement in all controversies. Because he's telling him right there that he's also to correct his opponents and instruct his opponents and teach them. Well, how is he going to do that without some confrontation? He's told him earlier in 1 Timothy, right, to fight the good fight of the faith. There is a warring that takes place. There is engagement, true engagement that happens here, right? So he's not forbidding all, right? But what he's saying is that Timothy's got to choose his battles wisely, Choose wisely, because not every controversy is deserving of his time and energy. And boy, what a lesson that is for us today. Man, I watch some people I know get caught up in every dumb controversy or thing going out there on social media, and the back and forth, and the name-calling, and the insults, and the slanders. You're dumb. No, you're dumb. Well, you're dumber. No, you're the dumbest, or something like that, Okay. Foolish stuff. Dumb things. Arguing over secondary and tertiary things and breaking the unity that we should have as brothers and sisters in Christ. Timothy's to stay away from that because some of those things are a waste of time. A faithful teacher doesn't devote his time and energy to that. He devotes it to preaching and teaching and the study of God's Word and delivering that to the saints. And he does that because right here... He's talking about the character and behavior of the Lord's servant when he is to go about correcting those who are in error. It's going to happen. How is he to do it? A gentleness. With kindness. With a certain ability to teach. Patiently enduring evil correcting his opponents with gentleness. Brothers and sisters, gentleness and kindness is not weakness. He's not advocating for timidity. We already know Timothy probably struggled with that. It's not about weakness. It's not about fear. Because there's another goal in mind here. right? He's not telling him to act timidly or cowardly or shrink back from what is a noble fight that he should engage in. Because I promise you, if someone's coming in here is, is a wolf teaching false things, they're going to be confronted rather quickly. But it's going to be done with a certain spirited in mind in light of what Paul is instructing Timothy here. A kind person, a gentle person, again, is not necessarily a timid person. This gentleness is the attitude, this kindness, in which Timothy is to correct his opponents. Because the goal of having an attitude of gentleness... Is winning souls. Not winning an argument. Too many people want to win an argument. And have no concern for the salvation of their opponents. So the first attitude and inclination is I'm going to be a jerk. I'm going to light them up. Well, you're violating this right here. You want to win an argument? Go ahead. Paul's saying that's a dumb thing to do. It's a dumb thing to do. It's about winning souls. Faithful teachers want to see people turn from their sin and repent of their falsehood and turn to Christ. So he closes with this reminder of the reality of the spiritual warfare. Because many times we look at the false teaching and we look at the false teacher and we just see it on this surface level. We need to be reminded of what's behind the scene here, don't we? There's a real enemy. There's a real opponent. There's a real adversary, the devil. The devil. And he's got certain people ensnared. He's got them. They have fallen into his clutches. They're in the grip of his clutches. They've fallen into his trap. And we should desire to see them delivered. We should desire for them to come to the knowledge of the truth. This is why an ability to teach is ne- necessary. This is why the correction comes with gentleness. At first, there may be a point like where Paul got in Acts that we read with Elimus. I mean, he said some pretty strong things to him there. That would be classified as not nice. But it probably didn't start there, right? It probably started with gentle rebuke. Loving and gentle correction. And then he had to bring out the bat. That may be necessary. If there's no repentance, if there's ongoing, you know, uh, uh, trying to deceive the people of God at some point, a shepherd's got to do shepherding things. Take their staff and you know what. Okay? A beat down will ensue. But that's not the starting point, is it? No, this is the attitude here. This is the heart. And that right is the heart of Christ and how he deals with us. How did Christ deal with us when we were his opponents? With compassion, with gentleness, with patience. We're to do the same things. The call to ministry is arduous. It's labor-intensive. Fraught with many challenges, false teaching and teachers will need to be confronted. As dedicated soldiers, disciplined athletes, diligent farmers, we can expect results as we devote ourselves to the ministry, as we work hard, as we sweat, as we labor, as we toil. As good workers, we need to be accurate and clear in our exposition, cutting a straight path to the truth, right? Uh, And only then shall we be approved by God, right? Right? workers who have no need to be ashamed. If we cleanse ourselves from what is dishonorable, we will be useful to the master of the house. We pursue righteousness and love and peace, and we we cleanse ourselves in life and character and conduct. We're going to be fit for the master's use. If we are gentle as the Lord's true servants as we engage in the correcting work of ministry, the Lord may perhaps grant our adversaries, our opponents, repentance, knowledge of the truth, and deliverance from the snare of the devil. It would be impossible to do all of this if we were to look to ourselves for our own strength. I read these things, and if I think, wow, this is what I got to do, we're doomed. I'm doomed. There's no way I'd give up immediately. Most do. But it's not in our own strength. It's not by our own ability. It's not about skill. It's about the grace of God. It's about the spirit of the Lord, the enabling grace and the empowering spirit in our life. That's why this opened up with that. Be strengthened by the grace of God. That is in Christ Jesus. Not in your own ability, Timothy, to encourage yourself. Um, I'm not saying you don't need to do that at times. You might need to have that self-talk in the mirror. That ain't going to get you through the hardship. It's not going to get you through the suffering. It's not going to get you through the trials. We need the grace of the Lord. If we're gentle... We're seeking God. We're purifying ourselves. We go beyond that. Remind ourselves of the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Remembering Jesus Christ. His powerful work. Remembering these aspects. In these three metaphors today. The good worker. The honorable vessel. And the Lord's servant. Of the example of our Lord. He is the ultimate and perfect good worker. What did he do in his earthly life? Perfectly taught the word of God. Perfectly perfectly exposited the law and the scripture. He taught with authority. He perfectly paved a straight path for his hearers. There was no corrupting path, crooked path. It was the straight path, the straight and narrow. He was the ultimate and perfect honorable vessel, set apart for the Father's purpose, for him to rescue hell-bent sinners, walking in holiness. So that he could empathize and sympathize with our weaknesses, yet be without sin. He was the ultimate and perfect servant of the Lord, submitted to the will of the Father, exemplifying gentleness and lowliness of heart. We find him there before his adversaries, on his march to the cross, silent. No need to speak a harsh word. No need to defend himself. The true Lord's servant from Isaiah's servant songs. He demonstrated that for us. and By his glorious work, he has destroyed forever the power of the devil. And we can praise God that his church will never ever be destroyed. The church of Jesus Christ will triumph because he has triumphed.